1: Hey, this is Ted Nugent. Hi, this is Jay Leno. This is David Hobbs. This is Bob Marshall. Hey,
2: this is comedian, author, and most importantly, vintage race car driver,
0: Adam Carolla. This is Shirley Cha-Cha Moldowney. Hi, this is Robert Yates. I'm John Forrest. Hey, this is Jack Roush. I'm Ken Squire. Hi, this is Edsel Ford. Hey, I'm Dave Despain. Hi, this is Danny Sullivan. And you're listening to Nostalgic
1: Radio and Cars. Nostalgic Radio
0: and Cars, Wednesday nights at 7 on the Tan Talk Radio Network. This is Robert from Nostalgic. Do you ever feel the need for speed? Well, experience the thrill of indoor karting at Tampa Bay Grand Prix, located at 12350 Automobile Boulevard in Clearwater. Call 727-527-8464. They have state-of-the-art electric karts racing around a quarter-mile road circuit. Bring your family, friends, and teammates for some speed, fun, and competition at Tampa Bay Grand Prix Indoor Karting Facility. Call 727-527-8464. Visit their website at tampabaygp.com.
1: Bob
2: Bondurant. I won the World Manufacturing Championship in the uh, Ford Cobras in 1965. And you're listening to you nostalgic know, Radio and Cars. i am
3: believing leaving you from Operation Bedlam, Douglas. Sir, a something of a must with me. you had two years to run him down. The license to kill is useless unless one can set up the target. I have the honor to request you will accept my resignation Depletion French of Blofeld Merry Christmas 007 I may yet surprise you Mr Bond and I have already met But each time is a renewed pleasure
4: She likes you, I can see it
3: This never happened to the other fella.
1: What she needs is a man to dominate her.
3: still left for endurance racing. Le Mans was one, another was the Targa Florio around the public highways of Sicily. There are in the region of 900 corners per single lap, and each lap is approximately 43 miles round, so you can imagine the problems of learning a circuit of this type. Normally, uh, a difficult circuit to learn, say, the Nürburgring, with 170 corners and about 14 miles round, you can learn in, say, 60 laps, but to do 60 laps round here in a road car would mean about 60 hours of driving, and to find that sort of time is pretty difficult. The road surface is extremely rough in many places. The suspension's working very hard all the time. You have the problem of rough verges and stone curbs, this kind of thing, all of which play havoc with the suspension of the car. I think in some ways it's more uh, frightening going around in practice than in the race. This is an interesting piece which is blind... This a normal day with normal traffic, so to watch the, how much road we use, it's very narrow at the best of times and in the race you have to be very careful at all times not to touch the kerbs and to try and avoid the gutters because of nails which are left by the horse's shoes. Possible, you know, for cars to go any faster on such and such a circuit, and they do.
2: This is Sterling Moss, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
1: Quiet, numbskulls! I'm broadcasting.
0: Okay, listeners, welcome. You are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your host, Robert. You know, that one little clip a little earlier is just music to my ears. That was a uh, little take on Brian Redman driving the Targa Florio course down in Sicily, Italy. Now, that's a course that started back in the uh, 19th. 1906, and I think it went on to the uh, early 70s, but it's an amazing course. And like you said, I think there's like 700 and some odd turns. But anyway, uh, run your computers in Google, tantalk1340.com, and you can see us live in the studio. And, uh, no, don't flex your toilets all at once. <laughs> and, uh, be sure and check out our website, Gulfstream Motorsports.com. If you've missed any of our past shows, be sure and check out our podcast. We have our podcast page up there. And also be sure and like us on Facebook, okay? And guess what? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I do have some radio giveaways da, 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 for this weekend. And, um,. Billy, you're doing really good on the uh, sound effects tonight. I, I <laughs> right I, on cue. I, I thought I'd try <laughs> another one. I see you have
1: another one in there. I
0: It's got a called whole bunch The of them Name in. of the Game intro. I thought I'd try that one before this one. That was actually a pretty cool spy TV show back in the 60s. Uh, you can stick that one in there again. That was actually kind of cool. But anyway, uh, and then be sure to run to our stuff page. And we still have a few t-shirts left, okay? Hey, one more thing. we got a new addition to our website. It's called Cars and Pars. And let me tell you a little bit about that. We are going to embark on our very first, we've talked about this for years now, but since we're coming up our third year in the radio business here, uh, we are going to do a first inaugural car show, and it's going to be held at Magnolia Valley Golf Club up in Newport Ritchie. May 19th is the tentative date, so if you want to... Here's how we're going to do this. We're going to have you guys go to our website, golfstreammotorsports.com, and you can go to the Cars and Pars page, okay? And there's a contact page and an information sheet that you can actually fill out and send to us, okay? Uh, I'm not sure how many cars we're going to be able to take. We're guessing somewhere around 100, which is a pretty good uh, turnout of cars. We're going to do this a little bit differently, though. I've been to a number of car shows and car events all around the country, so what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to keep this kind of simple. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to have three trophies. It's going to be basically people's choice. And um, it's going to be first, second, and third place. We're going to keep it real simple. The other thing that we're going to do is, unlike a lot of the car shows where they give you some cheap, cheesy, Chinese-made trophy, we're actually going to whip up something that's kind of cool. So we're going to come up with some sort of handcrafted... Now, keep in mind, you guys all know that I used to be in a salvage yard business. But we're going to come up with something original something handcrafted I got a couple of friends of mine we're going to sit there and brainstorm something and uh, we're going to come up with kind of a unique trophy so we'll have a first place trophy that'll be kind of big and then we'll have one that's going to be the second place trophy that's going to be a little bit smaller and then we're going to have a third place trophy that's going to be a little bit smaller than that okay so that way everybody should be happy because rather than have a whole bunch of cars there and try to break them down in classes and stuff like that it's going to be kind of difficult particularly the first time out of the box cuz we're not exactly sure what kind of turnout we're going to have. I mean, we could have a lot of street cars. We could have a lot of classics. We could have street rods. We could have trucks. We could have sports cars, muscle cars, hot rods, even junkers like my stuff. We could have all kinds of stuff. The problem you run into in many cases when you have car shows and you have uh, and you break it up in classes, you might only have one car in, in a particular class. So I don't really think, at least in my opinion, it's not fair to just give that particular car the award just because he was the only car in the class and therefore constitutes a winner. So, hey, <laughs> I like that. Uh, so basically what we're going to do is we're just going to have everybody that enters, okay? There'll be a small fee for for, for showing up there because we have to obviously rent the place, the location. and um, But there will be concessions because uh, Magnolia Valley Golf Club will have their clubhouse open so there will be food and drink you'll be able to get hot dogs, hamburgers, grilled cheeses, all kinds of little things like that, snacks, you know, potato chips, peanuts, whatever, uh sodas obviously and uh there may even be some alcoholic beverages available for some of you guys that are over uh, 21 and of course restrooms And uh, so it should be pretty good. And our own, our very own Billy, Billy here, is going to bring up his audio equipment, and he's going to play some really groovy music. And we may have, actually, Billy, you're going to to play some cool 60s, 70s music for us, aren't you, Billy? (laughs) And uh, and here's the other here's the bonus. If we get this done right and we and we can kind of plan this accordingly, then we, we don't know what the radio schedule is gonna be like, but there's a very good possibility that part of the show may be aired live. Now I spoke with the owner of the radio station and she basically told me that what we could do. Every hour, because they set aside some time, Billy can kind of explain this too a little bit, but basically what we can do is we can have a particular car owner come up, and we can talk to him for about 30 seconds, and he can introduce himself and talk about his car, and it will be featured live on the radio. So that's actually kind of cool. Now, we have other radio stations up there. What, we have 1400, and what's the other one up there, Billy? we got Dade City and Zephyr Hills, right, that are both uh, in that area up there in Pasco County? 1400. 1400, what's the other one? 1350. 1350. I should know that by now, because it's actually right in front of me here. But at any rate, so if you're in Pasco County or in, uh, what's that? what county is that? Zephyr Hills. Is that uh, Hillsborough County over there? Uh, (laughs) Anyway, so if you're over in that area, you can actually pick us up on the radio station. Matter of fact, you should be listening to us tonight if you're in Zephyr Hills or Bay City. Now, here's the deal. Oh, yeah. Let me jump real quick into the, speaking of Zephyr Hills, I have a set of tickets. Now, the 13th caller. Here's the number here, 727-441-3000, that's 727-441-3000, or if you want to dial toll-free, it's 1-800-826-1340, that's 1-800-826-1340, okay, you can call in if you're the 13th caller, and I have a set of tickets to go to the Zephyr Hills Winter Auto Fest at Zephyr Hills, okay. Now, I know i got some listeners over in Zephyr Hills, I know I have some listeners over in uh, Dade City, for you guys out in Arkansas, if you're listening, just for giggles, call in and let us know that you hear us on the radio station. And if you're ever in Florida, we'll get you some tickets to some sort of event, okay? Also, I've got tickets coming, okay? Most of you guys know that I try to get in touch with most of the racetrack and racing events that are going on. But the National Mustang Racing Association is going to have their event at the Bradenton Motorsports Park, okay? March, uh, let see, it's the 7th through the 10th, okay? So that's next month. And I will have some tickets, some giveaway tickets for the National Mustang Racing Association at Bradenton Motorsports Park next month, okay? Actually, it's in three weeks, or less than three weeks. So be sure and check that out. Also, you can go to our website, okay, GulfstreamMotorsports.com, and you can send us a some contact information. And guess what? If you want, depending on how many people we got called, we might have some extra tickets. I might even throw in some tickets there, too, as well. All right? Wow, speaking of which, we have a ton of car shows going on this month. At the end of the month, at Maverick, this weekend, we have, obviously, the Zephyr Hills Winter Auto Fest. We've got the Targa 66 at Palm Beach International Raceway. It's a vintage race put on by our good friend, Brian Redman. And we have the Boca Concourse. That's also this weekend. So that's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, down in the West Palm Beach area in Boca. How how come you haven't mentioned the most popular thing in racing? You mean that uh, event called the Daytona 500? Yeah, Sunday... Sunday is the Daytona 500 for all you NASCAR fans. Okay, now it'd be interesting to see Danica Patrick's on the pole. We got uh, Jeff Gordon crazy? in second position, and then I'm not sure. Last I heard, they hadn't really uh, sorted everybody else out yet. So it would be real interesting. Who, who's on the pole? Danica Patrick. Oh yeah. So, anyway, so be I'd like to see her win. I think, you know, That's good. Janet Guthrie's been on our show. Okay, she was the first lady to compete in NASCAR, and that was back in the mid-70s. And, unfortunately, she didn't have uh, really, really good equipment. Um, she did okay. She fared well. But now, this time out of the gate, Danica, uh, she did. Oh, groovy, baby. <laughs> she's got some excellent equipment. So, if she's on the pole, she's going to be very competitive. So, I think all our lady listeners out there are going to be pulling for Danica. Wow. So, uh, and I'd like to see her win. I think it'd be kind of a change. Anyway, let's see what else we got going on. Okay, so we got, the, we covered the Daytona 500, we covered Zephyr Hills, we covered both. we covered the Target 66, and don't forget March 7th to the 10th, we have Amelia Island up in Fernandina Beach, which is just north of Jacksonville. It's one of my favorite events all year round. It's an amazing event. They've got three auctions going on, or two auctions going on that weekend. They've got the Gooding Auction, and then of course they've got, uh, the, uh, um, Arm Auction. Anything! And also, Festivals of Speed will be on Saturday, March 9th, up there. So, I mean, you've got uh, a fun-filled week. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there's just all kinds of stuff going on up there at Amelia Island. So if you can make that particular event, be sure and do that. Billy, what do we got on the turntable? We got some spe- vintage. You spelled them all wrong. You, okay. you spelled it like Nick and Backers. Nick and Backers? Nick and okay. That's a good song. That's a cool, sixty song. Nick and Backers, Nick and Backers. Something like that. Yeah.
1: So all I racing driver and commentator for Speed Channel, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
0: 9090. They truly have the best smoking barbecue in town. Oh, and be sure and check out their great barbecue sauce. That's the Rib Shack Barbecue in downtown Largo, 727 501 9090. I'm telling Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Hi,
2: this is Robert Yates, legendary engine builder, car owner.
3: I love listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
4: Johnny is a joker. He's a bird, a very funny joker. He's a bird, but when he jokes my honey, he's a dog. His joking ain't so funny. What a dog! Johnny is a joker that's a trying to steal my baby. He's a bird dog. Johnny sings a love song like a bird. He sings the sweetest love song you ever heard, but when he sings to my guy, what a howl to me, he's just a wolf dog on the prowl. John Bird. He tiptoed up to reach her. He's a bird. Well, he's a teacher's pet now. He's a dog. What he wants, he can get now. What a dog. He even made the teacher let him sit next to my baby. He's a bird, dog. Hey, bird, dog, get away from my way.
0: Racing's important to men who do it well. Racing, is, it's life. Anything that happens before or
1: after. It's just waiting.
0: Okay, we're back and you're tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And it's time to introduce our special guest for the evening. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to the show this evening a world racing champion and a racing legend, Brian Redman. Brian, are you there? And welcome to the show. How are you doing this evening? Good, and you? Pretty good. You know, you got a birthday coming up in about a week or two, don't you? So how about happy birthday for you? <laughs>
2: Yes, but you know, in England, uh, after everybody's sung "Happy Birthday," the response is, "Why was he born so beautiful? Why was he born at all?" <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, Bill, we need to find a Happy Birthday thing and play it in the background there for him. So anyway, so this weekend we got the big Targa 66, which is your special event. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your event this weekend, Brian? Well,
2: this will be the 22nd year uh, now at Palm Beach International Raceway. In, uh, it's actually Jupiter, but it's you know close to Palm Beach, and uh, we've got the biggest entry that we've ever had. It is not racing, you know. These we divide the groups into three A, B, and C by performance, by experience, and by the driver attitude. <laughs> okay. We have a bit of problems with that from time to time, but we have a great entry. We've got over a hundred cars coming, including Porsche nine one seven of Ferrari three one two and two Formula One cars and a, a really, really great entry. And it's it's looking good. But as you may imagine, it's been extremely busy the last few days.
0: Wow. Okay. So how many classes does it uh, end up being total for all the cars? Um,
2: there's only three classes. Oh, they're, only th- they're grouped into A, B, and C. Okay. And uh, it's by performance and driver experience. And so let's say Group A, that will have Formula One cars in it, you know, from uh, probably four or five years old. And very, very high-performance cars. And then Group B, we come down a little bit and we get, uh, let's say, the Aston Martin, which is going to be next year, a Challenge Series, just like the Ferrari Challenge Series. Mm -hmm. And they have a superb Aston Martin. Three of those are coming. And people are driving them around and trying them, deciding if they want to be part of the series. Uh, We have the Radicals. We've got the Formula Juniors. We've got a, a, a bunch of cars.
0: Wow. Okay, so then, what about the guys that have the BMWs and the Porsches and the uh, vintage '60s, '70s GT cars? What class are they racing?
2: Yep, they all fit in. We run anything; okay. it doesn't matter whether it's new or ten years old, or five years old, or twenty years old, or thirty years old. We have room for everybody.
0: Well, that is good. So, how big? How many cars are you going to have total? There's over a hundred cars. Hundred cars. That's a pretty good field. Now, how many cars you so? What up? Let me guess. You. Break it up in like thirds, so like 30 cars, 33, 34 cars would be on the track at a time? or
2: uh, Yeah, we try, of course. You know, the problem is that when you, let's say, got Group A, with the very, very high performance Can-Am cars and Formula 1 cars, um, you know, you might only have in that group... 10 15 cars and then the trouble is in group c which is the slower group you might have 40 cars oh okay So you know we have to we watch that and we try to control it as much as we can
0: how many people do you have that actually work with you uh on the track as far as i'm because you have to have you know corner workers and you've got to have obviously people in the in the booth and then of course uh emergency vehicles and stuff like that so what kind of staff do you have there roughly
2: it's very, very, um, you know, very, very tightly controlled. I mean, my son James, who's now the general manager of historic sports car racing, he helps out a great deal. I do quite a lot. My wife does a lot. Trish Mazzoni, who's the wife of a friend of ours, Bill Mazzoni down in Boynton Beach, she's doing all the registration stuff, and then the corner workers come in from regular corner workers who go to the track all the time. And we, get, Because it's not a race, instead of needing... Twenty corner workers. We've got nine corner workers, but we have an ambulance, a fire truck, and all the usual stuff.
0: Okay, super. And what are there going to be vendors there and stuff like that too? I mean, people selling stuff, or is it just pretty much just the car hangout? Yes,
2: there'll be a few vendors, but we don't particularly encourage that. You know, okay. we get the guys who come out selling racing equipment, helmets, uniforms, artwork—you know, that kind of thing. But it's not intended to be a huge show. It's really a private club.
0: Okay, very good. Now, if somebody wanted to participate, let's just say from a spectator's, how would they go about finding out about it, and how would they get there?
2: They just get there and come in at the gate, and they pay 15 bucks.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, that's simple. Now, it's a Palm Beach International Raceway, which used to be Moroso, okay, for those of us who don't remember when Palm Beach International Raceway was, Palm Beach International Raceway back in the 60s, right? Yes,
2: that's correct. It used to be Dick Moroso who started it, and then uh, he passed away. His daughter ran it for quite some years, and then about five years ago, it was bought out by a consortium of local businessmen, and they changed the track. You know, they made it much safer. They spent a lot of money on it, uh, and uh, they built, well, they've got a kind of a marquee, but the track now isn't really like the old uh, Moroso, but it still has the drag strip. They have a very good drag strip there.
0: Okay. So now if I'm on the track and I'm driving, and, or let's just say I'm a spectator, up to what kind of speeds could, uh, I, uh, can you anticipate seeing people uh, you know, reach on that particular track?
2: Well, realistically, you know, the top speed of a car, depending on the car and the power, is really dependent on the length of the straightaway. And so on Palm Beach International, the straightaway is, is pretty good, and I would expect that the Formula One cars would reach 170, and the high-speed GT cars, the Porsche, you know, GT3s, the Aston Martins, will reach about 150.
0: Okay. What are going to be some of the more notable, unique, vintage cars? Now, I understand there may be a 917 there. There might be uh, an old 908 there. So tell us a little bit about some of those cars.
2: Well, of course you know the 917s which now are tremendously famous for their they only made 25 of them in the first place in 1969 Porsche couldn't sell them the selling price was $30,000 they couldn't sell them and they had an immensely successful racing program, I was lucky enough to drive four of them for those two years and we won the World Manufacturers Championship both years, the car at that time, the 917 in 1969 and 70 it weighed only 1700 pounds you know you compare that let's say to a NASCAR car which weighs over 3000 pounds but in 1970 the 917 had 620 horsepower so You know, equating that to the power-to-weight ratio, which is what governs the straight-line performance of a car, any car, whatever it is, a racing car or a, you know, a sports car, road car, anything, Um, it's, you know, it would be like a NASCAR car having uh, 1,200 horsepower. They've got about seven to 800 now. So even in the day, we're talking about so many years ago, they were fantastic cars. And there's one of those coming, and then the rules change, and Porsche could no longer use their car after 1971. And uh, the governing body restricted the engine size to a maximum of 3,000 cc, and then Ferrari came in. And I was lucky again to drive for Ferrari for two years in a car that's called the 312 PB, and we Won the world championship in 1972 and almost won it in '73, but we had some uh, some misfortunes. And that car was really a Formula One car with bodywork on. It was three liter. It gave 450 horsepower, and it weighed 1,350 pounds. It was very light and so hugely successful. We've got one of those coming. So we've got a, a great, great selection of cars.
0: Now, the, let's go back to the name, Targa Florio, or the Targa 66. Now, that, tell us how the name came about.
2: Well, you know, in about 1990, my racing, professional racing career was finished. I was getting old. I was 52. Uh, nobody was calling me, to, you know, asking me to drive for them. And so, effectively, I was out of it. But in 1982, I'd started vintage racing. And a friend of mine in vintage racing, Don Marsh from Columbus, Ohio, said to me, you know, how are you doing? I said, well, not that great. He said, well, why don't you start a club for people that don't want to race? I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, people like me, I'm going to retire next year. I've still got the cars. I want to run them. I enjoy the company of people, you know, with the same interests. Start a club. And I said, well, you know, how much money and how many cars and how many events? He said, well, I don't know. He said, three events a year for five thousand dollars he said i'll guarantee you ten people to join the club and that's how it started
0: oh that's interesting now tell us a little bit about your club because you said there's no real racing but let's just say for example like you join hsr or SBRA or and let's just say you're out west so you're at laguna seca which everybody goes to monterey now those yeah. guys out there are more serious they actually race don't they
2: they do and certainly at the you know the front end of the field, let's say the top three or four cars at Laguna Seca, they're racing. They're racing hard, and so there's a perception in America that people in vintage racing are just driving round and showing the cars off. But really, that's not true. The racing is tough, but the toughest in the world is the Goodwood Revival in September in the south of England, and uh, this year will be the 15th year, and I've been to every one of them, and those guys you know at the top end of the field they're out for blood, it's unbelievable and Lord March, the owner of the racetrack and of the event is the finest motorsport promoter in the world, he gets he pre-sells before the event 100,000 spectator tickets and you can't buy a ticket on the day, you can't go to the gate and say give me a ticket (laughs) it doesn't happen, you have to buy the tickets beforehand and of course what that means in a country like like England, where the weather is very variable, it doesn't really matter to Lord March whether it rains or not. He's got the money.
0: He's got the money. Okay, well, that <laughs> makes perfectly good sense. Now, speaking of that, those type of venues, let's just say Laguna Seca, for example, and let's just say the Goodwood event in England, those cars are very valuable cars, all prim- pre-, I mean, early racing cars with amazing race history, are those cars pretty much raced in original race configuration, or are they brought up to modern-day specs in terms of safety and and uh, mechanics and things like that?
2: Well, the oh to a limited amount. you know. In the day, some of those 1950s cars would not have had any kind of roll bar. And now they are required to have one. But it's a very simple one. You know, just a hoop behind the driver's head. And so, they don't have fire systems but they do have fuel cells uh, to prevent fire. In the old days were a lot of fires. I personally was in six fires between 1968 and 72 and these days, whatever of the form of racing, whether it's IndyCar, or whether it's Grand Am, or whether it's LMS, or whether it's vintage, you almost never see a fire, thank goodness.
0: Now, in 1970, um, let's go back to the name Targa, which, Targa 66, which obviously is something to do with Targa Floria, the race in Sicily, correct? Now, you won that race in 1970, right? Right.
2: Yes, we're driving with my great uh, Swiss co-driver, Joe Suffert, driving a Porsche factory uh, 9083 that weighed 1,100 pounds, and had 370 horsepower, uh, we managed to win the race. It was a it was a, a great win, really. But the name, you know, for the club, Targa 66, came partially because I like the name Targa. It only means road in Italian. You know, it's mm-hmm. nothing fancy. And then 66 was my racing number for Jim Hall of Chaparral Cars in the three years that I won the Formula 5000 championship. And that was also Jim's number. So I thought, well, 66 would be like like a good number, you know, to a good number of members, Mm -hmm. and I'll use Targa because it's a nice name, but for two years I had a huge uh, uh, problem, a legal problem with Porsche Cars North America, who said, we have patented the name Targa and you can't use it.
0: (laughs) Really? So what'd you end up doing?
2: Well, it got resolved eventually, and this is we're talking about 14 or 15 years ago. After two years, you know, Porsche said, well, if you promise not to use it for any other kind of commercial venture, you can use it. So that's where it finished.
0: Now, you being a former works driver for Porsche, I would have thought that they would possibly give you some sort of concessions, don't you think?
2: No, they couldn't care less. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> now, let's go back to the Targa, Florio. Tell us a little bit about that track, because didn't you have a little mishap on that track, too? And isn't that one that's got probably one of the highest percentage of turns out of any road course in uh, in Europe?
2: Yes. Well, I mean, one lap was 44 miles, you know, so there are over 800 turns per lap. Jeez. Uh, And uh, we won in 1970, and I made a foolish retirement and retired to South Africa in September of 1970 because I thought, you know, all my friends were being killed. And I said to my wife, Marion, I said, they're all being killed, you know, there's no reason why I wouldn't be. I've been offered a job uh, running a BMW dealership in Johannesburg, and I said to Marion, we're going, and we went. Uh, but I very soon decided that I disliked it. I disliked the apartheid thing. We were raided by the police one night in our home at midnight, and I just thought the whole thing was it was not very good. And so I came back into England in April, March, actually, of 1971 without a drive. Now, my place in the Gulf 917 had been taken by Derek Bell, But Derek Bell had never done the Targa Florio. And so John Wire rang me and he said, Brian, would you like to do the Targa? Well, to me, that seemed like, you know, a fantastic opportunity to get back into the big time. So we went. Well, the night before the race, my co driver, Joe Siffert, crashed the car. And it was repaired, you know, overnight. But then the next morning, race day, uh, John Wire said to me, "Uh, Redmond, we want you to start the race, which I never did. Joe Siffert always started. I said, you know what for he said I don't want Siffert and Rodriguez knocking each other off because Joe Siffert and Pedro Rodriguez were constantly hitting each other you know in the 9.17 so I started the race and right away from the beginning the handling wasn't normal you know there was something out on it and I got 22 miles round the 44 mile track and turned for a corner that was easy to see it wasn't a difficult corner and a turn and the steering broke you uh-huh. And I hit a concrete post in the fuel tank and the whole thing exploded. You know, it didn't just catch fire and uh, crash and catch fire. It exploded. And uh, I was very, very lucky. I just automatically hit my seatbelt release and Joe and I had practiced driver changes for like 20 times against the stopwatch the night before. And I leapt out on fire. I was covered in fuel. I'm burning from head to foot. And I, I fell over the verge and then some spectators came and they took off my uniform and they fanned me I was blind from the fire and they fanned me with magazines and 45 minutes later the the helicopter came you know that took uh, that's the problem with that type of circuit and then I was taken to some kind of care place it wasn't really a hospital nobody knew where I was and so for 12 hours I was blind I couldn't speak Italian and I was in some pain you know from the burns I'd been burnt on uh, my face my hands my hands my legs, the back of my neck. Uh, however, 12 hours later, at about 10 at night, Pedro Rodriguez, team driver, and Richard Atwood, another team Porsche driver, they came looking for me, and they found me, and they took me back to the uh, Porsche Hotel in Chafferloo, where there was a doctor who, you know, had just come as a spectator, really, uh, to the event. He gave me painkilling injections, and the next day I was flown back to England, and uh, so it was a, a very interesting time.
0: <laughs> (laughs) Oh wow! Okay, now the the so you actually didn't get a chance to finish that race, obviously.
2: No, I saw somebody about a year ago. Somebody sent me a photograph, a spectator, uh-huh. that had been taken, you know, at out, out the car. And you can see absolutely nothing. All you see in the photograph is black smoke wow. everywhere. It fills the photograph. But on the right hand side, you can see the right front wheel. You can see the spokes. The car was destroyed. And only about four years ago, I saw Gerard Larousse who was a Porsche driver, a Frenchman, mm-hmm. driving from Porsche uh, Salzburg, Porsche Austria. That was Ferdinand p x mother. And we met, and he said, Brian, how are you? And I said, I'm fine, thank you, Gerard. And he said, you know, when I have the accident in the Targa for you, he said, you know what was left? I said, no. He said, nothing. He said there was nothing left. There was a hole in the road, and inside the hole was the crankshaft, the only steel part of the car.
0: <laughs> Jeez, that car burned completely to the ground then. Um, yeah, and it's been rebuilt, of course. It now exists again. Well, now, th- what's the difference? That was a 908.3, correct? Yes, 908.3. So what are the differences in the 908? So, is there, And I'm not real up on the race car, on the 908 car, so is there a nine hundred eight one, two, 2, and 3? Is that Am I correct? Yes.
2: The 908 one was the long-tail coupe, and it was used okay. for Le Mans, Monza, Spa, Francorchamps, and races like that. We know very high-speed circuits, and the 908 two was the same chassis but with a short tail, open body, and that was used at places like you know Watkins Glen, Sebring in America, uh, Brands Hatch the Nürburgring ring and so on and so forth. But the nine oh eight three, although it had the same engine, it was a complete redesign. It was an incredible thing. They moved the driver further forward and your legs from your halfway down between your knee and your ankle, your legs were in front of the front wheels. And there was nothing there. There was just a little oil cooler. I mean it was a you know in those days Porsche and Ferrari and all the racing manufacturers, their only thought was lightweight and straight line speed. There was no thought of driver safety.
0: Really? So you virtually had no protection up there where your feet were in the, in the no, footwell? No, no. Now, this was 1971, correct?
2: Yeah, well, that was 71 with the Targa Florio, but really, I raced the car, you know, more in 1970. I only had the one race okay, but in, in 1971 with the Targa Florio.
0: But in 70, you won that race, correct? Yes, okay. yes, yes. Nice. All right, now then, when you, now, let's see, you, and then, when did you jump the Ferrari win? In 1972?
2: Ferrari won in 1972 with Arturo Mazzario and uh, Sandro Minari.
0: Okay. And that that was one of your more successful uh, seasons, because you guys took a lot of uh, championships, or yeah. tr- a lot of wins. We won that- every race. But what
2: was it? But we didn't go to Le Mans for a 24 hour race because the engine was based on the Formula One engine, known as very high revving, and they they thought uh, they were worried about the reliability. They thought it probably wouldn't last. Okay. So we didn't do Le Mans, but we won every other race.
0: Yeah. So Ferrari didn't have a motor that was prepared for Le Mans in that event?
2: Well, I mean, it's pretty hard, you know, the you can't really do all that much to prepare an engine specially for Le Mans when it's basically a Formula 1 engine giving 500 horsepower from 3 liter. You can detune it a bit by changing the camshafts and that kind of thing and you know, not using as many revs and it's then got about 450. horsepower, but, you know, how do you make it? We did did Le Mans the following year, 1973, Mm -hmm. and I was driving with Jackie Ix, a brilliant Belgian driver, and we were on the front row, along with uh, the other Ferrari, Sandro Manari, the Brazilian, and uh, uh, Arturo Mezzario, the Italian. And uh, it was it was very difficult. I mean, at the beginning of the race, Jackie Hicks, who normally started, he said to me, Brian, I wish you to start the race. And I said, what for? He said, I do not wish a battle with Mezzario. So I started, you know, and I took it easy, and by one in the morning, we were in the lead. And then we had a fuel leak, and then we had another problem, we had a puncture, and we lost time, and with... 45 minutes to go we'd been racing for 23 and a quarter hours I was out of the car, I'd handed over to Jackie X for the last session I'm getting changed in the trailer a little caravan, you know, not like today's motorhomes. and Jackie came walking in uh, he said, I'm sorry, the motor's gone. The engine blew up. It was caused by uh, the exhaust pipe, which had fractured at 2 in the morning, and therefore the fuel mixture to that cylinder had gone weak. And so 45 minutes before the end of the race, the piston broke, and that was it.
0: Oh, that's too bad. That was so close, wasn't it?
2: <laughs> you, you... Well, yeah, it was.
0: It was. <laughs> you know what? Hindsight's always twenty-twenty, right? But you had mentioned Jim Hall, okay? Now, you uh, raced for Jim Hall, what, for a couple of years, right, also? Yeah, four years, yeah. And tell us a little bit, what was it like working with Jim Hall and driving his cars? Well,
2: you know, it was really fantastic. We didn't actually socialize much or talk much. We talked about the car we go out to dinner we didn't talk much (laughs) he's a quiet guy but he was a he was a engineering genius really because at the end of 1972 I'd won a Formula 5000 race at Riverside in California and there was Carl Haas who was the Lola car importer for North America and he came up to me and he said Brian I'm having a partnership next year 1973 with Jim Hall would you like to drive with us well you I mean you know this is a great great opportunity and so I instantly said yes I never had a contract in four years with Carl Haas it was all done on a hand trake and so in April of 1973, we were back at Riverside for the first Formula 5000 race of the year and I had two cars, I'd got a car that had come from England that was prepared by Lola Cars which I had done the testing in and there was a car that a standard car that had been sent to Jim Hall Chaparral Cars in Midland, Texas and so we had two cars and two crews, uh, we didn't have any special testing time or anything and I went to each practice session I went out in one car, you know, I'd go out in the English car, then I'd go out in the chaparral and after, you know, two days of this practice I chose the chaparral, much to the disgust of my English guys, you know. So really? it was a great, great car and I, I won the first race. I passed the young hero Joe Schechter. Uh, on the outside of turn nine at riverside and the first race and we had a we had a great year unfortunately we didn't win the championship we won more races than jody but i missed two of the races because i was driving for ferrari in europe and he won the championship but then from then on 1974 Five and six, I managed to win the championship with Mario Andretti finishing second in '74 and '75, and Alan Sassini second in '76.
0: Wow, what an amazing career! That's just uh, uh, and and then also in '75, you were racing in GT, you were racing the BMW CSLs too, weren't you?
2: (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, funnily enough, I drove that car in Savannah in October. Yeah. And that was a great car. You know, the first race at Sebring in 1976, March of 76, there were two cars, two CSLs. It was the first race for BMW Motorsport. And part of the reason that they were coming to race in America was because the general understanding of the initials BMW in America was that it stood for British Motor Works. (laughs) so before the race Jochen Neapash, the team manager said to me, there were four drivers in those days, you know, Hans Stuck and Sam Posey in one car myself and Alan Moffat in another car, and before the race he said, Hans he said, I wish you to go out and break the Porsches and he said, Brian, you will take care and win the race and that's what happened
0: wow, (laughs) now Now, in, and in 78, you were back with Porsche, you were actually driving the 935s. Was there a huge difference between driving the CSL and then jumping into the 935?
2: Yeah, I mean, there was, because, you know, the 935 was an incredible piece of Porsche development, because it was basically a streetcar that had been modified and modified for racing, and it was a typical Porsche production. You know, whatever they do, they do it so well. And so, a 930. well, before that came the 934, Mm -hmm. which wasn't so nice. It had a lot of throttle lag, you know, because it was a turbo, and the 935 also had throttle lag, but not quite as bad. But the 935 in 1978, sort of eight, uh, 79, 80, it gave, for a short time, you could turn the boost upon the turbo, and you had to watch the exhaust gas temperature gauge, and if it went too high, the engine would blow, but if you kept it down, the power went from 700 horsepower, which you normally raced with, to 800 horsepower. Unbelievable. It was a fantastic
0: thing. Wow. Now the, the 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 BMW CSL. Now did they did that race in the same class as the 935, or were you in a different class?
2: No, not really, I mean, you see, the BMW CSL was really 1975 and 6. Okay. And by 77, the turbocharged RSR Porsche was starting to appear. They only made one or two of those. But then the 934 came. And of course, they would far more power. Even the 934, with its difficult throttle response, still had 650 horsepower against the BMWs, 450. However, in 1976, 6 we took a BMW CSL to Le Mans in France for the 24 hour race and this was a turbo CSL and we'd never seen it before and uh, it blew four engines in practice and uh, for the race they put one engine back in again the least damaged and before the race neopash said to me Brian, he said, I wish you to start the race and drive as fast as possible. It will not last. <laughs> <laughs> it lasted for two hours. Uh, you know, a 24 hour race which isn't too good but about two, more than 10 years ago I saw Martin Braungart, who was the chief engineer for BMW on the car. Uh, we talked about the turbo CSL at Le Mans, and he said, Brian, you know how much was the power? I said, yes, 750 horsepower. And he laughed, and he said, yeah, he said, this is what we tell the drivers, actually, 950. <laughs> So that was 1976, but you know BMW didn't continue with that turbo, and so the great era of a Porsche 934s and 935s came in. And I drove, you know, I drove a lot of them. I drove them um, a lot of races, and I remember driving for Dick Barber and uh, in uh, Road America in Wisconsin. I couldn't understand why, because he told me, you know, you you have a boost gauge on the dashboard, and the boost must remain at one point point two bar. You know, that's a European measurement. Mm-hmm. Then you have a co- the co- be controllable. Bertie said, don't touch the control. Leave it at 1.2. So I couldn't understand where I kept qualifying 7th and 8th, you know, instead of up at the front. And so I asked a young German driver, Rolf Stommerlund. I said, Rolf, can I ask you a question? He said, yeah, Brian, what is it you wish? I said, do you ever touch the boost, you know, in qualifying? And he stood with his hands on his hips and he said, Brian, do I ever touch the boost? He said, I turn it as far as it will go. (laughs) (laughs) And From then on, I I did a lot better.
0: (laughs) I gotcha. Okay. We got a couple minutes left, but just just to back up just for a second, why do you think? I mean, I'm back in the day, and I and I should have known because I used to go to the vineyard or to the to Daytona and Sebring back in the '70s. And that's right; it was the nine thirty, the RSRs, and the nine thirty fours, and the nine thirty fives. But my question is is why would BMW? run the risk of blowing that engine for the first two hours. Were they trying to make a statement at the, at the yes. Le Mans
2: race? Yes, they knew it wouldn't last, and so they, they said drive it flat out. You know, at least you can put in a good performance for two hours.
0: Okay. But then BMW never had any intentions of following through with that motor for, uh, for the following races then, right?
2: No, because soon after that, the 320 series came out. And that became their concentration. The CSL was no longer in production. The 320 wars and David Hobbs started driving for BMW,
0: you know, at that time. Oh, really? Okay. Well, you know, Brian, we're just about out of time. I do want to thank you very much for taking the time out, and I'm looking forward to your event this weekend. So this is basically a three-day event, and then are you going to be driving?
2: Yep, I'll be driving.
0: What are you going to, well, okay, well, yeah, a, that, that was probably a lame question. But anyway, so what are you going to be driving? What are you going to be running around and tracking?
2: Well, I'll be driving the uh, Aston Martin. because my last professional year in 1989 was for Aston Martin, so I have a connection with them. That's and in fun. August of this year at Laguna Seca, at the famous historic races, I'm going to be driving, racing the car that I raced in 1989,
0: the AMR1. Wow, that's amazing. All right, Brian, well, I want to thank you very much for taking some time out and being our guest this evening on Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And if you guys can make it, Palm Beach International Raceway this weekend, Target 66 with Brian Redmond. Meanwhile, I want everybody to stay safe, drive carefully, love your family, and there's a ton of events this weekend, and we'll see you at one of these because I'll either be at the races, I'll be at the swap meet, or I'll be at the concourse. So everybody else, until next week, keep tuning in to Nostalgic Radiant Cars for the most legendary names in racing and the best in motorsports. And be sure to visit our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com.